If you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. This, of course, is a special season and a special day of Holy Week, but I wanted to stay in the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we have been uh, doing a series, and so I've selected this portion. And you'll notice that Jesus does spring cleaning. Watch how that unfolds. This, of course, the verses that we're going to read in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 12, come right after Matthew's version of the triumphal entry of Jesus on the foal of a donkey to the shouts of acclamation from the people, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. As I say, Jesus is in spring cleaning here. He comes home and he finds the place occupied by lowlife squatters and looters. But they are the religious element. By the way... Jesus cleansed the temple in this way twice in his public ministry. Once near the beginning, that's recorded only in John's gospel, chapter 2, and this occurrence near the end of his ministry. So his ministry is bookended almost in a sense with uh, incidences virtually identical. And Jesus here in driving out the religious hucksters is making two points abundantly clear, one explicitly and the other implicitly by a fuller explanation in the writings of the apostles. He's first of all declaring very clearly that he is sovereign over the whole Old Testament religious life of the people of God that was centered in the temple. After all, you can see here that he waltzes in like he owns the place, (laughs) because he does. But secondly, when we ask the question, well, what was the import of the temple? Why Jesus' passionate display in this way? 
concerning this place. Well, first of all, you remember that the temple or the tabernacle both pointed to Jesus himself. In fact, in John's gospel, he said that when Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. He was the ultimate temple, the ultimate tabernacle. You remember the temple was the place where God's manifest presence was displayed in the Shekinah or glory cloud in the Holy of Holies. That is the place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of all of that. God coming, dwelling. God come near to be with his people. But then in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and a number of other places, we see that we are the temple of God. We individually are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are walking, talking God capsules, if you will. But also, we collectively are the temple of God. The church is the place where God uniquely displays his presence and executes his power. Or authority. First Corinthians 3 puts it this way. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And he goes on to apply that both individually and collectively. So his purpose in coming is to call us to and to cleanse us for worship. The church is to be ground zero of the cosmic praise of the living God, not the angelic hosts. They are sort of the accompanying choir, not that the choir is inferior, but the point is, the point is that that, that that the congregation of God, the people of God, that's, that's ground zero of all of God's created order where God is to be most magnified, most intimately known, most sweetly enjoyed, most powerfully displayed. By the way, this is the goal of evangelism. As... Um, John Piper says, mission exists because worship doesn't. The goal of evangelism is to raise up God worshipers. It's not mainly, evangelism is, and the gospel is not mainly about, though it can include some of these elements, it's not mainly about helping us to have a better life or to solve our problems or to ease our plight in a fallen world. God's purpose in calling us to himself and calling others to himself through us is to raise up a new race of people who, no matter what their life circumstances, are driven by one supreme overarching passion, and that is the name, fame, and honor and glory of the Father. 
In John's rendering of this event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, virtually identical, he quotes from uh, Psalm 69, verse 9, as being fulfilled in Jesus at this point, where the psalmist says, zeal for your house has consumed me, or the older rendering has eaten me up. <laughs> the idea is that, that that which marks me, if you want to know fundamentally who I am and what I'm about, this is, of course, the voice of the Messiah speaking through the psalmist, it is for the name, fame, honor, reputation, and glory of the Father. And we see that consummately expressed here, do we not? So the call of, of the goal of evangelism, rather, is to call out this new race of people who are obsessed with God and therefore spilling from that are controlled by God. We have to be wanderers before we can ever be workers. It's striking to me also that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple. Notice he didn't go to Herod's palace or to the Roman fortress of Antonio. In fact, not long after this incident, Jesus is standing before the civil leader or ruler of, of Palestine, namely Pilate, and says, my kingdom is not of this world. By the way, that doesn't mean his kingdom is over here shuffled into a corner, ghettoized from all of the other powers and authorities. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he means my kingdom is over all this world, every other power, every other authority. So history is not determined by the machinations of men and nations, by politics or policies, by the world's power brokers. The most important instrument of influence and change in this world, the mover and shaker of history, as far as God is concerned, is the church, the temple in which God dwells here. <sighs> and think of the church in the state that she's in today. There's a gap between God's calling and our character. May that gap be filled. So Jesus walks up to the usurpers of divine authority who masqueraded as servants of God, and he challenges them to a duel. He, as it were, throws down the gauntlet. <laughs> and it's over this issue of the sacrilege done to the Father's sanctuary. Verse 12, he entered the temple, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
This is falling into the hands of an angry God to rip off the title of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon. Judgment is God's strange work, but it is also God's certain work. And here we see a kind of sneak preview of the wrath of God against the desecration of the name, honor, and fame of God himself. So the pattern we see here with the religious leaders of Jesus' days is as old as the human race, and that is to turn religion into a circus of commerce. This uh, religious scam that was going on here grew out of two requirements in the old covenant worship of God. There was the annual requirement that every male Israelite must come and pay a half shekel in the temple tax, but it had to be paid in the special coinage of the temple, coins that wouldn't have any pagan idolatrous images or inscriptions on them, and so there was a money-changing activity that took place, a great opportunity for fraud. And the fraud proliferated through the generations as we see it played out here in this story. But secondly, the worshipers had to come with unblemished animals for the sacrifice. But in this shady shakedown that was taking place, most of the sacrifices that were brought where the people were deemed blemished, even when they were spotless. So that these middlemen for this noisy, boisterous, dishonest sham could require grossly inflated prices to get the ones categorized as unblemished sacrifices. And so these, this system of thugs for religious mafia operating under Annas, the high priest at that time, was an utter degradation of and an utter defiance of all that is uh, that honors God. Josephus cynically called Annas, quote, the great procurer of money. Also, this whole thing happened in the so-called court of the Gentiles, which was a You can read about this in Bible dictionaries and so on. It was this walled, marble-paved area on the south side of the temple that was three football fields long and one and a half football fields uh, wide. And in that environment, all of this haggling and jostling and constantly bawling of confused and panicked livestock was taking place. Can you imagine the stench? It'd be like a country fair and a stock exchange plus the outdoor drug dealing bazaar all rolled into one. By the way, this was the same spot also where a thousand years before Solomon had knelt to dedicate the temple and this fiery glory cloud descended and filled the temple with an unapproachable brilliance and splendor. 700 years before Isaiah had his vision 
at this very spot when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the pillars of the temple shook and trembled at the voices of the seraphim who cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, you see the compounded layers of sacrilege here. That, of course, would bring the intensity of the sun's indignation that we see described in verses 12 and 13. How unlike Jesus in any other setting we behold him. But let us live into Jesus' emotions here, the revulsion, the grief, the agony, the rage that explodes within him, causing, as it were, the bile to rise in his throat, a disgust so violent, not at the wretched stench of the animal's but the nauseating smell of the colossal wickedness here, that God's name was being drugged through the mud, that his honor was being bartered for a few coins, that his people were being exploited, that God's seekers were being deterred and discouraged by the fraud of the religious hucksters. How many people today are sitting at home because they have been profoundly wounded, broken, and disillusioned by religious hucksters. This is obviously not an isolated incident. And Jesus' reaction here signals what matters most to those who are closest to God. God's reputation, that he be reverenced, adored magnified, enjoyed, exalted, and esteemed. So all of this sacrilege and immorality is rooted in trying to find ourselves rather than being obsessed with finding and knowing and glorifying God. Because native within us, as within those first century people, is that we believe that feeling good or at least being without pain is more important than knowing God and enjoying Him. That's why these people were all about padding their own little personal conveniences and garnering their and leveraging even the religion of that day to personal advantage. Our worship, sadly, as Larry Crabb has put it often, is like tipping the cosmic waiter when he serves us like we think we deserve. The religion for the religious leaders of Jesus' day and in our day as well, regrettably, is just a way to jump through the hoops to adequately enough obligate God to serve our agendas. And so instead of a person to be known, God becomes a power to be exploited. You can see that that was the motivational dynamic at the heart of all of this. Self-absorption, hypocritically clothing itself in phony religiosity. 
And note carefully that this barefaced impiety occurred right in church. That was the church of that day. How many times and places and ways in churches today, maybe our own, there are lustful thoughts crowding him out. Yes, we're present, but we're plotting our next move to get ahead or rehearsing some hurtful or vengeful thoughts towards others. Singing the words in the songs, yes, but not really meaning them, not really believing in them. Isn't it arresting? that some of the greatest blasphemy perpetuated in the history of the world has been in church. (laughs) In acts of presumed devotion. Jesus' response here is like God's response to Israel's feigned devotion. He speaks through Isaiah in the first chapter of his prophecy. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who's required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices Incense is an abomination to me. New moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. You see... Acts of devotion committed perfunctorily just to check the box and jump through the hoops is a stench in the nostrils of God. Beloved, he wants our hearts. And then our acts of devotion can be expressions of and reinforcements of that heart change. Jesus has every right to come busting into our lives, tipping over the tables of our hoarded treasures and disrupting the commerce of our idolatrous commitments. Maybe the Spirit of Jesus is hovering right now in this room, Yes, he's gentle, meek, lowly, and mild. But he's also the Jesus who has his sleeves rolled up, who has zeal for the Father's house. And he is ready to clear out the spiritual vermin that have weaseled their way into our hearts. Before we move to the next point, we need to remember where this was occurring It happened in the court of the Gentiles. Do you know what that means? That was the place where the world could come and see what God was like. 
the Goyim, the Gentiles. But when they arrive, the behavior of God's people is telling a lie about God. In the very courts of the Lord, they're saying, in effect, God is all about just doing a little inane religious exercise, getting God off your back by jumping through his hoops, skimming off some personal benefit by whatever religious marketing you can engineer on the side. Do you know what this challenges my heart to wonder? What lies am I declaring to others, to a watching world, about God? Do we put stumbling blocks in the path of those who seek him? The atheist Nietzsche said, and these words are haunting, if you want me to believe in your God, you must sing me better songs. And what he meant really was that your life would sing an authentic message that reinforces what you say you believe. Are there there those who want to hear God, but they cannot because of the boisterous noise of our distracting duplicity? And and again, it's significant. This is the only time in the Gospels that we see Jesus using force because God is defamed and seekers are being debarred from worshiping him. And all of this, of course, points to a coming greater sanctuary visitation at the end of time when God will cleanse all that defiles. The prophet Malachi expresses it. Chapter 3, verse 2 of his prophecy. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Well, when Jesus cleared out the religious mafia, there was another group that came in in verse 14. Let your eyes fall on the text again. Look at verse 14. Who is the other group that came in? The needy, the broken, the blind, the lame. Those whom everyone else rejected. You know the pop theology of that day. They especially pointed to the lame and the blind and said, they're lame and they're blind because of their sin. That was the street theology, twisted, perverted in that day. But if we don't come to God broken, needy, unfit, unclean, undeserving, then our religion will be the utilitarian kind that merely tries to use him like the prevailing religion of that day. To leverage God and the things of God to some personal selfish advantage, to advance our own status or our own station in life. You see, when Jesus does spring cleaning in his church, guess who's left? The desperate. (laughs) Are you here today because you're desperate? You're just broken. You're undone. On the wheel of life in a fallen world. Yes, circumstantial things, providential visitations like what the Steele family is going through right now, but but mainly and mostly broken in the realization 
of our own utter lostness. The same passion you see in Jesus that drove the hucksters out is the same passion that moves him to draw the helpless in. The principle is, you see, it's those who do not have enough moral strength to hate evil do not have enough moral strength to love the needy. The two are inseparable. Passion for his holy name. Married to passion for the helpless, the broken, the devastated. Always found together. So he touches, he speaks to the lame and the blind. But look at the fury of the phonies in verse 15 in the first part of verse 16. when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out. Both Mark and Luke record that uh, this moment was when the establishment began to plot in earnest to kill Jesus. They had been discussing the matter for some time. But here they come to a specific plan that's adopted. He had challenged them to a power duel, and they were up to the challenge. He was claiming power over the worship of the people while exposing the utter illegitimacy and pretense of their authority. But you know what? God is challenging us today. (laughs) The Jesus with his sleeves rolled up and a strand in his hand. How do you respond when God starts disrupting your plans? How do you respond when God starts exposing your selfish motives? How do you respond when God starts opposing your attempts at self-advancement? Without going into detail, and some of you do know the details, I can remember vividly a time when God allowed things in my life that I felt would disrupt His plan for my life. I had worked so hard to succeed and carry out his will as the best I understood it. And I got to tell you, honestly, I didn't appreciate his seemingly uncaring lack of support when I had made so many sacrifices to represent him. Can you feel the energy of the impertinence? Cosmic-sized impertinence. I'm sharing this with you because I know these kinds of things lurk in your souls as well. We're cut out of the same spiritual bolt of cloth. See, my attitude could be expressed this way. How dare you, God, to get in the way of my serving you? I mean, just put it together. How stupid can you be? 
How dare you, Jesus, come in here and oppose all, my, all of our system of worshiping God? Who do you think you are? That's what they were saying. But the servant, the true servant says, if he wants to use me as cannon fodder in one of his firefights, bring it on. If, if my flame out will accomplish his purposes, hallelujah, I have no agenda but his will and his glory. Well, this whole incident is wrapped up with an indictment coming from the voice of the voices of the infants in verse 16 Jesus says haven't you read <laughs> you guys are you bible experts out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes god has prepared praise see he's mocking them he's shaming them He's saying, look, children and infants are more in touch with reality than you guys. If you, in your corrupt establishment, will not recognize who I am, then my father will gather a congregation of praising children to shame your guilty silence. Their concern was that Jesus was re disrupting their religious rip-off scheme. They were not concerned for truth. They were only concerned for their treasure. But Jesus' point here is <laughs> spiritual insight is not a function of human power and privilege. you got plenty of that. But of the openness, the lack of prejudice, and the lack of self-protection that marks children. I close with a story. Some of you have heard of the famous sculptor Thorwaldson. I think it's pronounced... Thorvaldsen. You've got to speak Danish to say it right. Anyway, he was a great sculptor, and he carved a statue of Jesus. And so wishing to, um, to see if his statue was causing the right re, uh, res, response of the, of the viewer, he brought a little child in and asked him to sit and look at the statue. And he asked Who do you think that is? And the child said, well, must be a very great man. Thorvaldsen knew that he'd failed. So he scrapped it, started all over. Again, when he finished, he brought the little child and asked, who do you think that is? And a big smile swept across the child's face as he said, Oh, that's Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. Then Thorvaldsen knew that he had succeeded. And that statue is famous down to this day. Because he submitted the statue to the test of the eyes of a child. In the case of the blind and the lame, and in the case of the children who sing his praise, we see the lowly, the needy, the dependent. They are the ones 
who have Jesus as king. The powerless in themselves are made heirs of all of his great power and authority. As we said at the beginning of the service, over all the kingdoms of time and eternity. We're going to sing about it now. Ride on. And the thrust of our song is a request that he would ride into our hearts with all of his gracious conquering power, that he would subdue us, that he would break us and bring us humbly to fall prostrate. That's the right response to a king, to fall prostrate before him. Oh, that God would do that again. In the beginning of this holy week, in preparation for Resurrection Day next Sunday, that all week long this theme would sing great songs of praise in our hearts to our God.